Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello and welcome to the American Reformer Podcast. I am Ben Dunson, the Editor-in-Chief of American Reformer. And my co-host is Josh Abatoy, the Executive Director of American Reformer. Um, today, we are going to talk about Christian nationalism. Uh, this has, has been a topic that has been um, you know, on the, the minds of a lot of Christians for, for a while now. It's, uh, it's over the last week or so, it's been particularly something that's been debated among uh, very uh, conservative uh, Baptists, and there's been an, an interesting uh, back and forth uh, among uh, them. Uh, so we're going to get into all of that uh, this morning. Uh, first of all, though, I thought it would be good to to spend a little bit of time just uh, talking about definitions of Christian nationalism. It, it seems to be one of those those things that a lot of people want to defend and a lot of people want to attack, but it doesn't seem entirely clear, at least to me, that everyone is talking about exactly the same thing. Uh, as far as I can see, the the phrase uh, in con- contemporary discourse came in with uh, with critics of conservative Christians. Uh, we've 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 got the um, the uh, people like Samuel Perry and, and different um, sociologists who were very uh, disturbed by just conservative Christians who wanted to see. Uh, Christian truth having any impact on our nation whatsoever, especially if it had to do with our laws or, or our state. So they they were using this phrase Christian nationalism as uh, a kind of scare word, scare phrase, and they were trying to um, to make it appeared Christians just back away from any sort of Christian influence um, on on our laws um, and our culture. It, it's like a lot of things. There was an interesting uh, response to that in that a lot of people started to take the phrase on. Um, and then as often happens when, when, it, when a phrase is used as an insult, uh, people will, they'll start to identify with it kind of as a way of, I think, uh, neutering the insult. Um, the, uh, the sociologists and all these people that were using it as a scare phrase, they didn't really seem to care what it meant. It was just, these are a whole bunch of bad people who have the possibility of of gaining political power in our country, and we need to uh, we need to prevent that. Um, as far as I could see, uh, I mean, Josh, as, as far as the origin, do you see um, do you see any anything different um, with that phrase? No, I I totally agree. I, I, the one thing I'd add is um, you recall, you know, we had we had Trump's election. He was called a nationalist before he was called a Christian nationalist. Um, we had the new right and realignment politics going on, and people focusing on how do we preserve, you know, America's got a distinct culture, distinct way of life. How do we preserve and protect that? Um, you know, what are the implications of that for immigration and other national policies? Um, so, so nationalism 
has really started having a moment with Trump's ascendancy um, and a lot of, I think, really interesting, good stuff in that in that discussion from a wide range of people. I mean, all the way over to American Affairs and very, some very highbrow publications. People really took an interest in sort of re-exploring some some nationalism. Uh, I mean, even you know Yoram Hazoni's book, The Virtues of Nationalism. Um, yeah. There was a lot of, I think, interest from many different sectors, and nationalism in those cases um, certainly harkened back to some of the the real classical nationalism, the historic stuff like the came came of age in you know nineteenth century Europe, but a lot of them meant something different. They meant nationalism in uh, distinction to globalism, yeah. right? So, you know, the, the nationalism debates in Europe were often about um, the nation asserting itself over city-states and smaller political units. And the nationalism that was asserted during the Trump years and, you know, that we're still talking about is an assertion of national sovereignty as opposed to supranational structures. Um, so, so, you know, it's a mistake to, you know, with the current nationalism movement, I do think it's a mistake to impute kind of the classical 19th century European nationalism onto the current movement. It, it, it has evolved somewhat as a term and as a political movement. Um, and so, yeah, I think... That, that background is probably an important piece in these discussions. And, you know, I think a lot of people, pretty broad spectrum of people um, have, have sort of said, hey, you know, I'm a nationalist in that sense. And I'm a Christian. Guess I'm a Christian nationalist. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you've had, you've had that general response, um, which was kind of just an instinctive response for a lot of people. Um, then you then you had some who started to think more in terms more systematically more more um, academically is this actually a phrase that we should we should take on um, uh, Stephen Wolf's book Christian nationalism or the uh, the case for Christian nationalism would be probably the main one um, there was also the the shorter uh, book by um, Torba and um, I'm blanking out for a second um, on Isker. The, the, the Isker. Isker. Yeah. Um, on, on Christian nationalism. So some people started to, to say, well, we, we actually need to make a case for for Christian nationalism. And and Wolf's case was was largely a return to the categories of 16th century Protestant political thought. I mean, he, by his own admission, he has his own emphases, uh, paleoconservatism, uh, uh, emphases and um, and just his own individual take on certain things, um, but he he was arguing for for things like um, uh, well, for, first of all, accepting nationalism in the sense of uh, you seek what's good for your own nation um, before you even would ever think about um, any sort of internationalism, and, and I think kind of opposed to that internationalism that goes back to at least Woodrow Wilson, where the world seems to matter far more than your own nation, um, which is just um, you know, something that a lot of people instinctively don't like. In the same way that if someone were to tell me I, I had a moral responsibility to take care of everyone else's family uh, before I took care of my own family, you know, we, we'd recognize that as, 
as as evil actually um but but wolf is is arguing and, and others have joined him in this for a a return to classical protestant political philosophy and that would include certain ideas uh for some at least um that would be more sympathetic to uh, even the idea of established churches um not everyone um agrees with that even it's and it's interesting because this this is clearly still in flux um the people who want to use the phrase christian nationalism don't all agree with each other uh there there is a i would say a, a more baptist appropriation of christian nationalism which is is definitely opposed to the establishment of state churches and yet um likes the phrase thinks that it's it's useful um a lot of that is just getting us back to trying to use the power of the state to uh rule in such a way that's just as we understand it as christians um you know just christian norms i mean they don't you don't even have to call them christian it's just just whatever is just um but it would be a basic idea of morality as understood in christianity um and to see that actually enforced by law it's not theocracy it's not an attempt to establish a theonomic system um and um and rule minutely in that way um in a lot of ways it's just going back to what i think most people in america really saw america as being until you had this kind of hardening of 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 radical secularism you know probably starting in the the latter half of the 20th century um mm-hmm. And, and you've mentioned this to me before too, you know, kind of a, a return to just the the norms of classic political philosophy um, as well. You know, I, I, I've I'm a Presbyterian, but I've had people say that uh, that I'm a Baptist in, in my political thinking because I I am I'm opposed prudentially to established churches. I, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's immoral. I don't think it's uh, wrong in principle to have them, but I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's really a priority today. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't really think we should, we should seek it. I actually think it would be bad in our situation to, to, to worry about that. And and my reasoning is, it has nothing to do with the norms of classical liberalism. It's actually just simply the fact that uh, we have, uh, we're in a nation that is going in a very bad direction very fast, um, legally speaking, culturally speaking. And I don't want to spend my, I don't want to expend my energy fighting other Christians about establishing state churches when we've got bigger fish to fry. Um, you know, it's essentially because in, in, in our circles and sort of, uh, new right circles at times, people, they love the phrase, no enemies to the right, but it's, it's remarkable how often it seems to be the opposite. It's like uh, only enemies to the right um, on this sort of thing. And I just, I, I don't want that. I think we, we need to focus on the more generic kind of, if we're going to use that phrase, Christian nationalism, um, basic, just Christian norms in, in our law, in our society. I guess my thought, and you can tell me what you think about this, but m- my thought is, uh, wait and see. Is Christian nationalism going to be the, the the umbrella? Is it going to be the phrase that everyone latches onto? Is it going to be something that's really useful? My approach is wait and see. It might be, but if it is, I suspect that it will 
it will only be so as it becomes pretty generic um, mm -hmm. where it is more or less just simply we recognize that we can't have a neutral public sphere um, that we need to seek to have just laws um, as we understand those according to natural law, as we understand those according to scripture. Um, and, and we need to seek that. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine anything much more specific than that really taking root in America, but I'd be curious to know what you think about that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and I, I think there's a, um, the, the only thing I'd add to what, what you just said is I, I think there's probably going to be some increased recognition of, hey, um, Christianity is a integral part of our culture. And, you know, we're the, the nationalist movement. You know, we want to preserve our history, our customs, our traditions. And and we we are a Christian nation culture in a cultural sense. That was our founders were deeply steeped in, in Christianity, at least culturally. Um, even if some of them were heretics or had some had some bad views on points, you know, the, 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 the nation and certainly the people, the founding stock were Christian people. And so, you know, just very commonsensical things. We'll have Ten Commandments in our schools, uh, which Texas is doing as of this week. Um, yeah, which is the, amazing. The <laughs> it is. It is amazing. And, and you know, it, it's, uh, you know, so I think that. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, it, this broader, <clears throat> if it's going to become a, like a political movement and operate under the banner of Christian nationalism, it will necessarily have to be broad. And, and, and I think there's, you know, even from some of the people that are writing on Christian nationalism from a more particular angle, I think they recognize this. Um, you know, Stephen Wolf's book, very, scholastic in the way it argues and advances the argument. But I think he similarly at least makes a concession to prudence on the establishment point. If not, you know, I, th I think he says something to the effect that it's, you know, establishment is sort of outside of the political norms and traditions of America. And, you know, um, so, so it wouldn't be prudent to seek to force that, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, um, you've got, uh, I mean, Frank, you've also got, you know, this wing of the Christian nationalism and, 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 you know, Andrew Isker and Torba are in this wing where they're very driven by their post-millennial eschatology. That's sort of an intrinsic part of their argument. Yeah. Um, and maybe th their, their version of Christian nationalism is more um, theonomically inflected. Um, whereas, you know, Stephen Wolf's version is more, um, you know, classically reformed and also very heavily Thomistic. Um, and then you've got, you know, to your point, you've got this more generic uh, Baptist version of Christian nationalism uh, that, you know, I think is is really leans into the nationalism side of, of the question as well. And, and, and in reference to recent political debates about nationalism versus globalism. So and then probably, the, I mean, maybe one of the biggest rooms is just, you know, a, a bunch of charismatics uh, <laughs> who yeah. who. Uh, they just know that uh, they want uh, they want our leaders to honor God, and you know they don't have a lot, they don't have a ton of specificity in their program. But you know the, those are the people that you know we largely depend on to show up and vote for uh, for our candidates. So, I mean, my my, my impression. So, in, in local Republican 
politics uh, where I am, it's, it's really fascinating to, to attend various meetings. And there's this, I don't know what you would call it, honestly. I mean, you could call it Christian nationalism if you want. It probably would make sense to do it. Uh, these are people who I'm certain will never even learn about um, the, the kind of debates we're having. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, would, they wouldn't have the vaguest clue who uh, Stephen Wolf is or, or any of these people. Um, they probably would be like pretty militantly opposed to hearing about language of established churches. Um, you know, there's probably some of the, the academic ideas in, in what's being called Christian nationalism that they would really not like. And mm-hmm. yet, and yet it's, I mean, th- the way in which they kind of seamlessly merge their Christianity and their political involvement is, is just fascinating to me. Um, they, you know, at, at these meetings, um, I, I, they, they pray explicitly Christian prayers to open all of these meetings. You've got even local government officials who are not embarrassed to pray in Christ's name publicly. Um, you've got people, I mean, they're doing things that, that make me uncomfortable because they, the, the way in which they, they see scripture as, as directly applicable um, is it, just, I mean, it's, it's very strange in some ways, you know, they'll, they'll, I heard once uh, recently, um, a guy who was getting up at, at this Republican um, executive committee meeting and saying, Isaiah prophesied about the Democrats um, today. Um, and, and it's just like everyone's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I, oh, OK. Um, I, I don't think that's probably true. But um, at the same time, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we more or less want the same kind of laws and the same kind of norms in this country. And I think like those people are going to be very, very sympathetic to, to that, even though they're, they're going to be either uninterested in these academic debates or they would just, they might actually be concerned or horrified (laughs) by them. Um, But they, they just instinctively want to have a a political stance informed by Christianity. And, and, and and that's, I think that's actually a lot of people, a a very large Mm -hmm. percentage of, of Americans, I think, still think in that, that way. I think that's right. And I, I think that the utility, some of the utility of the Christian nationalism debate that's unfolding right now is, is, um, you know, a, a lot of people are waking up to how um, they've interpreted American history and tradition through a very heavily, like, post-World War II viewpoint. And they're realizing that, um, you know, the version that they've had of Americanism in their mind is actually very heavily inflected by Rawls and people like him. Um, and so that, that's all, I think that's all really good. And then to your point, you know, a lot of, a lot of the voters, they have really good instincts and, you know, they, they, they have the right instincts on policy, um, but, you know, they, they need, uh, you know, doing the conceptual framing, you know, in the pages of American Reformer, First Things, other publications like that, you know, that ultimately will, that will kind of maybe filter down to their pastors or, you know, mm, indirectly yeah. filter down. And it, a lot of it is creating like uh, permission structures or, or whatever that make people feel okay speaking like that publicly, right? So that they're not shot down immediately with, um, 
oh, separation of church and state, there's a wall of separation, or, you know, these sort of uh, sloppy, half-baked arguments that have become so popular uh, for secularists uh, to throw at Christians. Um, you know, you can't, uh, you can't enforce morality, you can't legislate morality, those sorts of sloppy, quick objections. I, I think that this whole discussion has been very helpful in making us all much more immune to those sorts of arguments. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good segue into uh, the the debates that are taking place right now in in the, the Baptist world, um, debates over cultural Christianity, um, you know, whether that is 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 a good thing or or a bad thing. Uh, do you want to introduce us to those those debates? Yeah. So and I'll try to be somewhat brief, but. You know, in the, in the Southern Baptist Convention in the 80s and 90s, you had these major figures that were um, very close with the Republican Party, actually all the way up through Bush. Um, you know, so you had uh, uh, Richard Land, you know, Jerry Falwell, who I don't recall if he's Southern Baptist, but he was a, he was a Baptist and very a lot of Southern Baptists liked him. And they were they were very, um, you know, they were culture warriors. They were. Um, you know, very aligned with uh, the, the conservative movement. And then you had a generation come up after them, and these tended to be the younger, more uh, young, restless, reformed Baptists who they critiqued the closeness of, you know, leaders with political uh, parties. Uh, and Russell Moore was the most prominent example of this this crew of people. And they were, they were often um, critics of you know, church culture, they were critics of the Bible Belt. Um, you know, Russell Moore famously wrote an article about, you know, May Mayberry will lead you to hell just as surely as Gomorrah will. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think his, I think the title of the article was uh, Cultural Christianity is, is Dead and Good Riddance or something like that. Yeah. Um, so these, these guys were often the products of the Bible Belt, uh, maybe they saw issues or shortcomings there in the in the Christianity that they grew up in, and then um, sort of went hard the other direction and wanted to just throw all of it out. Um, and the interesting thing, I give you that backstory because in the last couple of weeks, there's been an, a, a debate that kind of surprised me with the um, some leaders in the organization called G3. Um, which is a group of very, con they're very conservative Baptists who left the SBC because they were concerned about its, um, I think, I think the big driver was, was uh, CRT and the SBC's failure to deal with CRT definitively. So they, they left the SBC about three years ago. These are confessional Baptists. They're uh, 1689 Baptists, right? So every church that joins G3 the leadership affirms, uh, subscribes to the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is essentially the Westminster, but just with the baptism provision tweaked. And the, um, they also did tweak, actually, the language around the magistrate to make clear that they don't uh, support establishment. Um, but otherwise, it's the, it's the Westminster Confession, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, uh, and they were they were also leaders in kind of the the anti woke movement in the SBC. So they they were early signatories of the Dallas Statement against social justice, um, 
and they've been very prominent voices. Well, they, they came out very hard against Christian nationalism in the last couple of weeks. And the big driver, one of the big drivers is actually this cultural Christianity point. So Scott Aniel, uh, who's I think an executive VP over at G3, um, you know, has been saying things like, you know, Christendom's gone and it's good that it's gone. You know, Christendom was tried and it didn't work. Um, and then he finally, he wrote a long form. He's been getting into it on Twitter, lots of battles and uh, a lot of infighting. Finally wrote a long form article on it actually this morning um, as of the day of recording. And uh, one of his, it's called the mixed blessings of a Christian nation. And one of his extended arguments is that, um, you know, cultural Christianity is bad. It's an impediment to the gospel. It inoculates people from hearing the gospel. They, they think they're already saved. You create false conversions and that impedes the advance of the gospel. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I gave you all that background with Russell Moore and all these people just to say, it's, it's funny. I'm not, they're very different from Russell Moore, of course, but in this argument, they sound quite a bit like arguments that Russell Moore has made over the years with respect to cultural Christianity. Um, and, and I guess to shift towards evaluating the argument a bit, I, I think that the, the burning question I have for these guys is did, did Christendom really fail? I mean, that's a, that's a very bold assertion. What is the counter? What are we measuring against? What's the counterfactual? I mean, arguably, Christendom had a really good run for 1,700 years or however long you want to, maybe maybe 1,500 years. Um, you know, it created, uh, it created uh, civilizations with a ton of virtue, education, who made tremendous achievements, social stability. I think a lot of it, you could argue, culminated in the American founding and the early American nation. Um, you know, it resulted in, um, you know, the development of, you know, conceptions of human rights and, you know, international law that would restrain the behavior of nations when they interacted with each other. Um, it resulted in uh, a lot of good, actually, in, uh, you know, I, I mean, it, it resulted in when, when these Christian nations interacted on the global stage, oftentimes they were actually far more humane than non-Christian societies tend to be when they encounter um, civilizations that are less advanced technologically. So that, you know, the British Empire, right, they're building hospitals and orphanages and railroads and all of these things. Not to yeah. say colonialism was perfect, but, you know, compare them with Genghis Khan or Tamerlane, who, yeah. um, you know, reduced 10% of the world's population when they started expanding their borders. And yeah, they, I mean, yeah. the British Empire, yeah. at the height of its power, used its its uh, navy to end the slave trade um yeah so so you know you 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 can't um you can't say that imperialism was uh uniformly bad it actually was quite good in a lot of ways so um, so christendom's record is not perfect but it's like what are we comparing it against are we comparing it against utopia i mean yeah. <laughs> like and, and and then similarly with the argument about cultural christianity what are we comparing it against if you have a nation where you say we're going to have Christian norms and Christian laws um, and you say, OK, human nature being what it is, we're fallen. That will result in some people thinking that they're Christians because they've embraced the cultural trappings of Christianity. I think we all grant. Yes, 100 percent. That will happen. Um, but what 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 are you comparing against to say that that's really bad and we need to avoid that? I mean, in order to avoid that, does that mean we need to um, have 
I guess, purportedly neutral and we need to get into neutrality, but, right. but like, do we have to have purportedly neutral laws and what does that do to the population and the society? I mean, it, it, uh, you know, in other words, is, is it, is it actually possible on this side of an eternity to have a just lawful arrangement? Any, any, any political arrangement is going to have downsides. Um, but is the downside of some people having a false conversion worse than the downside of having a nation with pagan laws? Yeah. Or, I mean, think about the example of Islam and the, 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 the nation, the Christian nations where, Islam triumphed after its rise, it, it didn't take very long for Christianity to essentially be extinguished in, in those right. places. And um, I, I would, you know, would someone try to make the argument that something that's hostile to Christianity is better because the only people being converted will be really converted, um, but that Christianity disappeared in those places. Um, it, it wasn't just that, oh, um, now we've got real Christians. It was, we have no Christians um, eventually. Um, I, I, I do, I wonder with this argument, if there's some confusion, they, they seem to be, they seem to be under the impression that what the, the proponents of, of Christian nationalism in, in a variety of forms are saying on cultural Christianity is, that nominal Christianity is actually good for individual souls. You know, it's like, it's actually a good thing that you've got a, a bunch of false professors um, that uh, I, that seems to be like what's in their mind. Uh, there's, there's maybe more going on than that. But I, but I, then I see those who are making the argument for cultural Christianity, what they're actually saying is basic Christian norms are good for society. Yeah. But there's 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 a there's a sense too in which there there might be some some in the in various sectors of the Baptist world who who don't believe Christianity can have anything to say to the public sphere, perhaps. I mean, you know, that it's Christianity is about individual souls within the church being saved. And, and so like, we don't, we, we, we don't care, but then again, I wouldn't think the G3 people would really fall into that category. I think they would actually care about, you know, basic, just norms in society. Um, all I see the cultural Christianity argument making is basic Christian norms in our laws are good. Like they're, they're good for, for everyone. They're not yeah. going to convert anyone, you know, only the gospel and the, the power of the Holy Spirit will convert people. But why not both? <laughs> yeah, let's, I mean, let's, let's, we need to figure out what we're comparing against. So in a, let's say, let us say in a Christian nation, a nation that um, self-consciously identifies as Christian and promulgates Christianity through its norms and customs, like that, let's just say that results in the average citizen being an unregenerate cultural Christian, right? And I guess if we're comparing that against a secular state, which I actually, I, I almost don't want to use that word because I don't think a truly secular state is possible, but a, a pagan state, a non-Christian state results in the average citizen being a pagan. Which, which one is more receptive and pr prepared to hear the gospel, the pagan or the culture, the cultural Christian? 
Yeah. Um, and they're both going to hell unless they believe right. in Christ. So. Right. And is there any other reason why we might prefer for the average person to be a cultural Christian rather than a pagan? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's, there's a lot of provisional good, right? It's not good in the sense of the, for the eternal destiny of the soul. Uh, if, if a cultural Christian is not regenerated, but like a cultural Christian is going to um, be a better citizen. They're going to be a be better member of society. They're going to live a better life in general. Um, I, I guess the counter is they, they are convinced that they're a Christian and they're going to heaven. Whereas in the, the pagan secular person, that person isn't convinced that. And so, so, so the, the counter would be that the, the cultural Christian doesn't actually know that they need to be saved. Um, and, and they might actually be, they might be resistant to the claim that they need to, to believe in Christ and to repent but that doesn't seem insurmountable because um, we would all agree that that's not good. I mean, in, all yeah. Christians would agree that that's bad for that person um, and that they need to, to, to genuinely be converted and they genuinely need to hear the gospel. But um, I, I, it's not just about the individual either because it's, it's about what's good for society too. I, I think that's maybe a, a missing component of this is, is basic Christian norms are good for society, mm -hmm. even as we want everyone to be converted. Um, and, uh, and we, we, and the church works toward that, even as they might support these basic norms. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and then you think of in a Christian society, like there's going to be far more opportunities for, well, for one thing, like God's moral law is going to be more um, accurate, accurately reflected in the civic laws. So that has a teaching function. Like people are more aware and cognizant of the fact that they're, they're in sin, that there's a standard they're not living up to. Um, they're reminded of that on a more daily basis. And then, you know, it's just also more likely, like if there's social expectation for people to go to church, for example, um, well, then people are more likely to be in church and hear God's word <laughs> and yeah. God's word is effective, right? Like we don't, we don't control the Holy spirit. We don't, it's not about how we, we bundle or market, you know, the scriptures, but like the script, hearing the scriptures are effective. Maybe a culture, Christ, cultural Christian, they go to church because they want to be a member of society and that's the social pressure that causes them to attend they take their kids along and their kids hear the scriptures and are, are regenerated. Like, that's great. Um, th there are all of those additional opportunities to hear the gospel in a society that's culturally Christian and God's word has effect. So I, I think, I mean, we're, the, the, the argument that cultural Christianity inoculates people from the gospel depends upon I mean, it, it, it depends upon, it, it's sort of looking at only one, like I think looking very myopically at like one downside or challenge that arises that's particular to a Christian society mm -hmm. without taking into account all of the virtuous effects of a society where Christianity is the, you know, the norm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it seems almost impossible to argue or prove some sort of assertion that the downside of that effect outweighs all of the benefits that come with it. Yeah. And no one's denying 
that people who think they're Christians because they're culturally Christian, but who aren't converted, no one's saying that that's good. Um, right. and, and no one's saying that that doesn't need to be addressed. But then again, the only institution that can address that is is the church. Now, and I, I accept even what some of the, the proponents of, of certain forms of Christian nationalism say, that the state might be able to be supportive of the church, even though it, it can't overstep its own authority and, and start to take on the, the prerogatives of the church. But ultimately, only the gospel can deal with that specific problem of, of uh, a false conversion or, 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 you know, someone who thinks they're converted, who's not. Uh, but, but everyone would agree that that has to be dealt with um, and that that is an actual issue. But yeah, the question is, is that an insurmountable objection to supporting basic Christian norms in a society that make everyone better off? I mean, they, they're, they're better for our, our pagan neighbors, you know? Yeah. Um, it's better for them to live in a society that doesn't allow gender transitioning. It's better yeah. for them to live in a society that um, has law and order, that um, mm -hmm. punishes crime. It, everyone is better off. Even even pagans are better off in that kind of world. Yeah. Yeah, they're all better off uh, living in a society where the Ten Commandments are posted in front of the courthouse yeah. <laughs> in the town square. I mean, really, yeah. like, it, um, yeah. And, so and why, why the horror? Why the horror uh, uh, among some of these guys? Uh, you know, the, the thought that that we could do that, which seems to be what America has done for most of its history. I think there's a couple things going on. We've seen this a lot, but I think there's some. Um, when, when pastors weigh in on political philosophy, so not all pastors, but some, I think <clears throat> sometimes they have a tendency <clears throat> to uh, subordinate the role of the magistrate to evangelical uh, concerns of evangelism, mm. right? So, so in other words, the magistrate has to carry out their function in a way that um, uh, is, maximizes evangelistic opportunities or, you know, pastoral, like, like kind of subjugating it to pastoral concerns. And, and I think, I think some of that's going on here where, you know, Stephen Wolf um, definitely is, he's talking about what should a Christian political ruler do? He's not talking about what should a pastor do. Right. Um, but I think that some some Christian commentators hear Stephen or other proponents of CN and they 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 think immediately about them in their church and their pastoral work. Um, you know, Jonathan Lehman ran an article with us as well, where he goes on in depth about his pastoral concerns regarding Christian nationalism. Right. That. Um, so, so I think part of that is what's going on. I think the other thing is. Um, these, I, I think there's some lurking Rawlsian thinking in some of the G3 commentary. Um, so Scott Annual tweeted a couple days ago um, that, you know, Christian, in, in a way where he clearly did not, you know, approve, but he said, you know, Christian nationalism seeks uh, the imposition of Christian laws uh, on the entire population. 
and that's just interesting phrasing. I mean, it, the way it's set up, it's like, okay, it, it, it's, you know, kind of as if it's clearly not acceptable for Christians to impose Christian laws on the population. They should be imposing something else, some common, you know, common laws, some, um, you know, secular laws. I, I think this is coming through Van Drunen. Um, and then, you know, ultimately from Van Drunen, I think there's, there's, there's some Rawlsian uh, thinking, you know, and, and libertarian thinking here, but basically um, folks think that, uh, you know, I, I think people think it's, it's possible to have a set of laws that are not rooted in any particular comprehensive viewpoint, right? That they're, they're, they're laws that, um, that are kind of uh, available and, and, and just to everybody, regardless of their comprehensive viewpoint, just by use of public reason. Um, and public reason basically means, you know, Ben, if you can go out and argue for a policy using reasons that are acceptable to every single person in the town square, no matter what comprehensive viewpoint they're coming from, then you've just used public reason to support your law. And therefore, you know, your law is like one that can be passed in a pluralistic society. Um, so that, that's sort of the Rawlsian framework. So, you know, to, to say it's not proper to enforce Christian laws, you're saying um, we shouldn't enforce laws that are particular to Christianity, that, you know, they're not the general, you know, people are not generally um, expected to behave in accordance with these laws if they're not regenerate. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that, that I, I think so. so I, this is why I think there's some, some unexamined Rawlsian assumptions in what the G3 guys are saying. Um, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but the problem with Rawlsian thinking is that he ends up saying, like, he ends up saying that there's a lot of laws, uh, that are neutral, but they're actually anchored in, competing comprehensive viewpoints. They're not religious ones. They're secular ones. Utilitarianism, uh, libertarian, kind of John Stuart Mill's libertarianism and the harm principle. Um, Those are themselves comprehensive viewpoints. So when you, but, but he says they're, they're public, it's, you know, they're public reasons. They're not, you know, so basically what, what you end up doing is you create a one way ratchet that favors secular comprehensive viewpoints, non-religious comprehensive viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, uh, and as if those are just these, these neutral, um, right. these neutral stances. Yeah. They're neutral because they're not religious, but you know, um, they're still rooted in, in, uh, I mean, very contentious philosophies of, you know, that, that have a philosophy of everything like total philosophy of life. Yeah, and as as Christians, we know that they're not religiously neutral anyway. Um, right. If you if you if your philosophy rejects God, that's not a stance of neutrality towards God. That's a stance of hostility um, towards God. That that's I mean, in their in yeah. their way of thinking, that's neutral. But of course, that's that's not at all neutral. Um, yeah. Well, like with the harm principle. So John Stuart Mill's, you know, he says the government really should only act when it's stopping people from physically harming each other. Right now, what, what's going on in that? That sounds intuitive and okay, that's fine. But what's going on is 
like he's he's basically saying moral harm isn't real or it's not the kind of thing a government should ever seek to stop. Yeah. It's it's less real. It's it's a weird thing that different religions have different ideas about. It's not a public concern. It's not objectively real in the sense that a government should step in to stop it. Um, which which is know, interesting. So, because, like like I'm I'm reading um, I'm reading Cicero right now his his treatise on duties, and you'd have to reject the entirety of what he says about law and society it, with that kind of reasoning, because he's making very clear moral evaluations about moral harm and moral good. Um, that couldn't fall just into the category of physical harm, but he's yeah. not making anything. He's not grounding anything in, in religion when he does that. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it, um, yeah, most, I mean, most human societies have, have been pretty realistic and matter of fact about, you know, moral harm being a real category, right. That we want laws that, um, not just that, that stop people from physically hurting each other, but we want laws that, uh, encourage the development of moral virtue, right? And, and, and adversely uh, prohibit uh, behavior that degenerates the person and results in bad moral character. Um, you know, that's, they that's do, a they do of, too. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the progressives that adopt this way of thinking, they want that too, because they, the arguments they make about transgenderism and, uh, and and all the rest, um, they're very moral. I mean, they're they're making moral arguments. You know, this is is yeah. morally evil for you to be opposed to transgenderism. It's not just that you're harming people. It, it it's it's a moral evil in their mind. Yeah. Um, so let, let's just accept that everyone has a conception of what is right and what is wrong, and let's. Um, Let's once we've accepted that, then we've got to find some way to um, to argue for our version of what is what is right. That's not that's not. Um, I mean, it's it's impossible to do otherwise. I, I don't see how right. how there's any other way to argue. Right. Yeah, I, you're right. I I think uh, sometimes I think to myself that uh, <laughs> Russell Moore and other classically liberal Baptists. David French, these people might be some of the last followers of John Rawls left on earth. (laughs) (laughs) Progressives have totally moved on. There's almost no constituency for John Rawls anymore, uh, except for uh, hilariously a small handful of Christians who want to really hang on to post-war liberalism. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Well, I mean, with these, with these, um, the G3 guys, uh, maybe this would be a, a good way to close today. Um, I mean, these are good guys. Uh, they, they want a lot of the same things that, uh, that, uh, I think people like you and me would want. And, and they are bold to argue for those things in public. And yet they, they do have these hangups. Uh, there's probably a lot of people like that. Um, do you think, there's hope for our worlds coming together, or is this just going to be like a, a a breach that's just not fixable? Yeah, I mean, we're we're all going to find ourselves in the same political coalitions for any issue that matters in the foreseeable future. Um, I think uh, 
you know, I do think it's interest. It's an interesting signal about the viability of the phrase Christian nationalism. Um, I don't, I, I think that's gotten pretty broadly adopted. And I think uh, even a lot of people in the G3 networks and circles are very positive about Christian nationalism as a label and a banner to march under. Um, but, but to your point in the earlier discussion, I, I think, I think this is indicative for people who are trying to lead the movement and leading the arguments. This is indicative of like, um, you're going to have to settle on the right broad formulation that can eventually sit over the movement. Hmm. Uh, because if you're having trouble, if you're having trouble getting G3 on board, there's going to be a lot of other constituencies that you have similar trouble with. So, yeah, no, that's a good point. Well, good discussion. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Um, if you've liked our, our discussion today, uh, we'd ask you to uh, get on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating for us, um, leave a review. Um, we're also on um, Podbean. What's the other one, Josh? The third one? Podbean's uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Right, yeah. So, so you can you can leave a, a review, leave a rating for us, a positive rating. Uh, if you'd like it, that helps us get uh, more uh, people listening. And until next time, we uh, will see you guys later. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer.